Well, welcome back to SideQuest 16 and the beginning of something new. The beginning of Final Fantasy VII, Squaresoft's, what was it, I think, 1997 uh, smash hit. And, well, I guess I should, I should welcome guest, Mr. Wesley Chance, And then we also have a second guest joining us to host this. Mr. Vincent Reese. Mr. Wesley Chance, good to hear from you. Hi. Hi. I want to hear from Vince now and see if he's really here. Is Vince really here? Well, Vince is not really here yet because he has not accepted the invitation. (laughs) (laughs) I heard some music playing in the background, though. Somebody's playing Final Fantasy. Yeah, I've got got the music on in the background just to, to augment what it is. We're uh, we're doing here, but I know I know Vince hasn't yet mastered the technology, so perhaps perhaps the the call is just sitting there. And um... <laughs> oh. oh, is this is this our enigmatic third guest, Mr. Vincent Reese? Am I on? And am I live right now? Yeah, you are live. Oh, oh awesome. my what? dude! And so just like I suppose it's funny. It's just like a metaphor. Just as I joined first and West second, and we prepared the way for you to join third, like the Timaeus. Here you are now, Vince, and welcome, mm-hmm. welcome, welcome to a project that we've just now gotten started and need your speciality in order to finish. Yeah. So, so Vince, so just to get going, just because you know this first minute's always sort of an awkward minute let's just sort of hear what your last year of life has been like because something we're claiming with the uh the viewers here is that you're enigmatic and all the viewers and listeners they really know about wes and me wes has got you know oh he just had a wedding and he's been teaching and he's been going through uh earthbound on his podcast (laughs) and i've been doing this and the iliad and uh doing hayao miyazaki with wes so everybody knows us we're old news why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and um, then we can get into this and then maybe also tell them a little bit why you agreed to play Final Fantasy VII and talk about oh. it with us. Mm. Great game. Uh, yeah, so I'm essentially the youngest brother going on his wandering 20s. <laughs> uh, don't think I've been in a place consistently for longer than maybe two years uh, with the exception of college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll just buy a motorcycle and ride until it breaks down. And that's where I will stay. Well, that's perfect. So you sound just like our protagonist here. You're sort of a disoriented yeah. young blonde individual who doesn't know where he belongs <laughs> in the world and rides on a motorcycle doomed to fail. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> like completely atomized without history, uh, potentially without future. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> let's just say I'm hoping that I'll get dumped into uh, some Mako and find out who yeah. I am. Yeah, very good. Well, you know, without knowing who you are before getting dumped into the Mako, perhaps it becomes even harder to figure out who you are. Um, <laughs> wow. But okay, okay, let's talk about let's talk about this game <laughs> a little bit. So first and foremost, I have to say I have a lot of respect for you, Wes, for analyzing a game in the first place. So e- even though I started the podcast with a book, you started with a game. And I have to say there's just so much more to analyze and to look at in a game. I mean, for one, there's the name, Final Fantasy. The Final mm-hmm. Fantasy, which seems sort of like a contradiction in terms because there's a number after it, seven. Right. So how <laughs> could it possibly be Final Uh, The second thing is it's called a fantasy game. And uh, from the intro on, this seems to be a highly technological society. It seems more like a science fiction sort of game. And we've talked a little bit about uh, potential distinctions between science fiction and fantasy, though it seems like that distinction might be blended here. But there are other things to think about, too. It's a certain style of game, a role-playing game. There's a leveling up feature. There are menus that you have to access. You have hit points. You fight enemies in a very specific way there are boss enemies that require additional strategy um uh you have a sprite as well as cgi and it's just how much there is i I, well i guess i it's not even a question that i have for you Wes. so much as i'm very impressed well the question would be where do you start when you're analyzing a game I, i i've taken the route of saying i hope that the listeners have some 
background playing the game that I'm talking about. I assume they do or else they wouldn't listen in the first place. Or right. if they don't, if they don't, then they don't really necessarily uh, care about all that stuff too much, all sure. the ins and outs of the, the technology. And that's not my, my expertise. Like there are people who can go into a lot of detail and, and explain those things and how they work and some of the mechanics and development um, aspects of the game. But what I try to do with it is, is read it, you know, like a text, almost like a, like a book that I really like and want to talk about. And then I get to talk about the things that I like about it, which is the best of all possible worlds. Right. So, so there's, there's something in what was said a minute ago, which might be helpful for people to hear about a little bit is that um, uh, if, if Vince is kind of like cloud is what we're saying, then does that make, um, makes you, does that make, <laughs> no, I wasn't going that way. I, I agree. I agree with that. But no, but I was going to say, does that make St. John's soldier, right? Like, what's your, what's, your, what's your soldier experience then, Vince? Oh, soldier experience. Well, um, the running joke is that, <laughs> uh, what, what's, what's the original guy's name? Can't even remember it. Sephiroth? No, no, no. The one that- Zach. Zach. Yeah. Zach. yeah. So I essentially, uh, Schmied has been the Zach. and uh he's he somehow died at some point uh in our relationship and i carry forward the um false memories and uh imago if you will of zach as my own okay all right well that's so so that's well yeah yeah wes go on now that we've got that straightened out uh yeah like I say, there's there's way too many things to go into all of them, but there's there's some point at which um, the game is sort of like highlighting certain things that clearly it thinks are important, and then there's like memories and things that I have of playing the game where those are the things that I guess I must have thought were important, and then I sort of bridge those into all the stuff that I'm interested in now, like um, you know philosophy and and politics and science and poetry, and so I just sort of like try to bring all those things together and and draw draw the connections as much as possible and i just hope that it's interesting to to the people who might or might not be listening i guess well my my man can i ask something about how how you got into the game into Mm. the games i guess Mm. so how do you the most daunting thing that i'm seeing right now is just how to how to look at the visual aspect of the game how do you analyze that because it's it's different from logos it's different from word Mm -hmm. you have almost like a it's more than a movie um because of the players interaction with it and the movement throughout the world um so how how do you approach the visual aspect and the movement within the visual aspect let let me jump in on that before i let you answer that wes just because Something I think that's strange that, that I've run into as I've started to interpret the game is sort of the, the interplay between the subjective and the objective aspect of playing. On the one hand, there is the game that everybody has the shared experience playing, sort of like you have a shared experience reading. But on the other hand, you have sort of a subjective experience because you are the one making the choices, even though they're fairly prescribed and playing. So I have a real difficulty between and perhaps this is why all reading is rereading and you have to read twice um and you know you, you measure twice and cut once is because um i find myself really switching between those two modes the playing mode where i'm sort of the subjective character being born along by the story but also the objective mode where i'm trying to to uh, see what it is that is happening and to derive the information from oh, yeah. it so so both as a player and a commentator at the same time Wes yeah no I, I think that's a really one of the most interesting things that playing games or reading books does right is it teaches you I don't know if you want to call it a method or just like an attitude or perspective where you you see the distance between those two things and you start to notice well if I see that distance then other people have seen it too and they've probably you know thought about this a lot and then you, you know so then you start to kind of really enter into that conversation on that reflective level but then the game is great because it's sort of it seems to prioritize the playing, the subjective, the flow of, of being in the moment of it. And um, that's what's sort of fun about playing, right? You lose yourself. Yeah. And yes. that is hard to talk about in a way that doesn't sound sort of banal or like 
just sort of slippery, but it's definitely essential. And it's just worth like throwing that out there. Um, what is something it, like you were like Wes or excuse me, like Vince was saying um, before we got on air, like when we were first setting up this project. Uh, yeah, both partners <laughs> in this project where, you know, we all serve the ideal. We are ourselves just parts of the whole. Um, but um, what he was sort of saying is he was like, oh, man, you guys want to get sucked into that game. And I, I thought that, that that was a really great comment to make because it's like that is the power of the narrative and of narrative itself. Right. It can mm -hmm. suck you in. You can go down the rabbit hole, as it were. And so sort of this experience is us both going down the rabbit hole while also keeping in mind that we are down the rabbit hole. So we, we also have sort of a third perspective, not only the sort of objective what is happening perspective, as Vince has been exploring through playthroughs, which is something I'd like to talk about, the difference between playing and watching a playthrough, because I know so many people have watched their friend play this game or have done this with an RPG, um, but, also, um, but also the aspect of being able to view yourself being sucked in during yeah. the game. Uh, uh, and having to sort of, or being capable of actually striking that balance now, because obviously we're all adults with relationships and uh, and jobs, and, um, and and we also have a goal. Yeah, not we're just all to play NPCs to have fun. essentially. <laughs> well, we're, we're getting there. Maybe we're boss battles. But um, what? Okay, so let me just dive in here. There were three parts to this first playthrough that I I really wanted to talk about this time around and we we played through the very beginning of the game through the first boss to the first meeting back at avalanche Whoa. where we meet tifa yeah. the young uh friend slash potentially lover of cloud Best who girl. is from Best his girl who is from yeah who is from his hometown and so just a few parts that i'd like to think of first is the intro with the harp and the mm -hmm. zooming in and the zooming out and the seeing the stars, but the stars are actually snow and the snow is going down, is going up, but it's actually going down. And then Aries, mm -hmm. uh, who's going to be sort of at least for this first disc. And this is one of the first games that employed the use of multiple discs for PlayStation, which added to the gravity of it. Just what an amazing <laughs> game. So much information, multiple discs. My right. goodness. And she's going to be sort of a divine anima sort of figure, a sort of, woman who is the ultimate woman in some way and also an aspect of the great mother so just to just to mention this from the very beginning we see three major themes one is what you think you see is not necessarily what is actually there what's mm -hmm. down and up potentially not correct cloud as soldier as someone who doesn't care potentially not correct um this woman as poor slum selling flower girl flower girl of course sometimes being a metaphor for someone who sells her own flower um a prostitute so there's an inter interesting connection there and also a connection to mary magdalene of course as another great mother figure but also a connection between that which is beauty and nature and the ugliness of technology because this midgard that we see which is of course the name of middle earth from the norse mythology is ugly it is, uh, it, but it also is a symbol of the self or of perfection because it's a circle, um, like Plato's soul from the Timaeus. And so we see an interplay between technology and nature in the same way that we're going to see uh, an interplay between science and fantasy or science fiction and fantasy. And, um, and I suppose the last two things would be, I, I would like to understand the interplay between cloud and the 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 red light that he viewed and mm -hmm. right before the first boss that manifested in words that then warned him against something it makes me wonder about what vince was saying when he talks about somebody being impressed by another and sort of taking on the destiny and the attributes <laughs> of another person whether that's something that's actually happened in this text and or in this game and then when cloud and tifa are talking cloud and this is a flashback when, when they're young after they meet together back at their hideout, which is a bar in the slums of Midgard. Um, he says he wants to be like the great Sephiroth. And he wants to join Soldier. And so a theme I would like to consider today, but also just in general, would be, would be the, the interplay of, of you and, and what your dream is and your pursuit of that dream and how it affects you. 
if you do not realize it. Well, really, really quick, I'd like to ask a question just to clarify for uh, firstly me and secondarily the other listeners out there in the ether. Um, you said this red light, which happens after they shut off the Mako reactor, uh, and then this uh, this voice, this text dialogue box shows up. Mm-hmm. Warning, warning Cloud or perhaps the party of this approaching uh, Scorpion Monstro. Now, it sounded like you were saying that this might not be an external yes. dialogue box. It is an internal dialogue box only heard by Cloud and that is that what you were saying? That that would be my initial suggestion, specifically given what it says. Okay. Because that's careful. This is not an ordinary Mako reactor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I'm not sure why the Mako reactor itself would give that warning to somebody. Um, it seems as if something in his unconscious yes. or like something occurs to him that maybe he can't understand. It, it doesn't prevent him from making the mistake of or or of conducting the action of trying to blow up the Mako reactor. But it it does seem like it's a prefiguration or a foreshadowing of there being sort of a splinter in the mind of cloud. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and something that might expand. So with time. Yeah. Go on. That dialogue box was always, I'm going off of memory right now. Uh, The retro gaming joint I usually hit up didn't open till 12 because I don't know. But they, um, it was always mysterious because that dialogue box is really the only dialogue box in my memory that happens before a boss fight that isn't, say, another party, uh, party member speaking about the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your interpretation seems, seems like it's already getting to Cloud's last name strife that there Mm. is this fracturing of the psyche within this um i i would argue perverted cosmos of midgard um Mm. but no that that's interesting that that's already uh a pretty tight observation my dude well and you know something that i'm going to probably try and push while we go through this is somebody that Wes and I have listened to a lot is this contemporary psychologist, Jordan B. Peterson. He takes a concept from Jean Piaget called the the zone of proximal development. He says that that's how adults relate to children, especially coaches, parents, and teachers, that you always give them a task slightly beyond their initial abilities. And so that dialogue box, and I'll say Sephiroth in general as a figure of the self conflated with the shadow seems to himself be a representation of the zone of proximal development. The thing which pushes you into the next situation that you're not yet prepared for, but if you engage with it, perhaps you can succeed at. And right before the first boss, the first big challenge that strikes me as sort of exactly how you would feel, right? Like before you go on stage for the first time to sing or before the first time you go up to hit for a baseball game, that nervousness that just is sort of a shock that can be prohibitive to you or before you even get onto a podcast for the first time and speak your thoughts live for everybody to not listen to on the first hand, but eventually criticize if we're successful. Um, (laughs) But Wes, we said quite a few things here and I know that's, uh, you know, we're, since it's lunchtime, it seems like we're laying out a buffet for people to uh, choose from. But yeah, I know that's, yeah, go on. The uh, so one thing that I noticed about that part of the game, uh, is that right before that you pick up your first uh, materia also, ah. right? And it's the it's the restore materia, and you don't know what that is when you start playing the game, and you're not even allowed to do anything with it yet because there's like a whole tutorial about how to do that that happens right. after, and so that's kind of interesting that it's juxtaposed there. Um, we learn later like sort of what goes on with Mako and materia, but for now it's just like. Oh, here's this other like magical thing that I know nothing about. And now, oh, the screen is red and it's telling me, watch out. So there's something interesting where it's like there's much more going on than we really understand as we're starting to play. And that's like kind of we're supposed to know that we're supposed to get the sense that Cloud knows more than what he's letting on. You know, like he's got this experience 
as as a soldier with a whatever whether that's an acronym or just like a capitalized for some reason word right um but anyway, yeah he's so he's ex-soldier and now he's with avalanche and avalanche are trying to take down the mako reactors and save the planet this and that but it's like he tries to put off this um this persona that he's like yeah doesn't care he's above it all and so it's interesting that he would get this um this red flash warning which is a combination of as Vince was saying earlier, right? Like a kind of like liminal thing between logos, the word reason, and just like impressions of sight and yes. uh, light and sound and, and feeling, right? So it's a really interesting moment. The boss fight, fight is kind of o- underwhelming, right? Because yes. that was like, the scariest you know, the first thing fight. 12 year old Vince had ever seen, dude. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't discount that. It's probably still going to be the scariest thing. But what, what happens though, right? Vince is like, the stronger the attack the thing uses, like if you do mess up and hit it and it shoots its laser out of its tail, it just gives you a limit break like right away and then you kill it. That's like it's, yeah. it really, the limit break is really, we can talk about that another time. But anyway, so like, that's what I was thinking about with that is like, okay, so how does, how does materia, and I think this leads us back to the Eris scene in the beginning as well, right? Ah. So um, this kind of like microcosm, macrocosm thing going on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, let me add to that. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. so we 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 have a we we learn about material which we don't quite understand yet. We run into a boss that we have to learn how to and this is something that you said, we have to learn patience in order to mm. correctly fight him. Then we learn something new about ourselves, the fact that we have a limit break and can use that as well. And so I think that's all strong evidence that uh perhaps what the game is itself um, but certainly these first moments is a representation of, of, of how to act in a situation where uh, known territory has dissipated, where you are now, uh, you are now, there are now unknown tools or tools that you do not know the function of yeah, that yeah. you now gain access to that will be useful in soon future events that you don't necessarily, well, that themselves foreshadow the existence of those events as if. As if a goal makes the tools necessary to achieve it appear um, yeah. in the first place. Um, but that makes me, that makes me, um, oh no, there was another question I really wanted to ask about. Oh no, it's popped out of my head. I'm sorry. So that's what I had to say for that moment. So um, <laughs> really quick, I'd also like to recap, um, just briefly get it into like a crystallization of what we talked about. So, with the appearance of this dialogue box, because I'm, I'm currently fascinated by that, we have three options on the table. Um, we, of course, know these because we have played through the game. And if you're not a chump, you have beaten the game. <laughs> you have uh, one first individual that came up as who this voice might be, might be the sort of um, interjecting personality of Sephiroth right we'll learn more about later or at least Cloud's perception of Sephiroth yes yes because we we found we find out just after this that Sephiroth is the ideal in the same way that Soldier is sort of like an ideal to these peons this avalanche that Cloud is talking to and I think that's an important element Cloud clearly looks down on the people he's Mm -hmm. working with yeah so so the Uh, second option that we have would be Zack that there's some sort of spiritual entity of Zack that remains after his death. We, of course, only know this from later on in the game that he takes on this persona. Um, and he, he is actually wearing the same sword and hairstyle, even uniform yeah. and hairstyle as Zack. Yeah, he looks very similar. And what, yeah, what, what the power of Genova, mm-hmm. which is a mistranslation of Jehovah, which is something interesting about this Japanese to English game. Yeah, um, Final Root Fantasy. That. Right, right. <laughs> and all the swearing. And that'll be, yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting aspects to get in. So you were saying it could be Sephiroth, it could be Zach. And then Go there's on. a third that my man Wes brought up was that this could, instead of being, say, a um, internal psychic entity of Cloud, that this is rather, and again, we find this out later as Wes pointed out um this could be the materia speaking to 
cloud in its crystallization of the spirit force of the world. Mm. Spoilers, guys. Um, uh, materia is us. Uh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Well, so I'm, I want to get to a meaty question here. So Cloud's name is Cloud Strife. And if you put Cloud plus Strife together, that's a storm. Um, and in fact, that will be the name of the protagonist for Final Fantasy VIII, Squall. And oh, yeah. so, and so, essentially, Cloud is a stormy sort of character. His hair is even stormy, right? It's like lightning bolts shooting out of his head. Um, sort of a typical anime style hairdo there. If anybody thinks of Dra Dragon Ball Z, but um, also he's a part of a group called Avalanche. And what is an avalanche? Well, it is <laughs> because of a large noise being caused, a tremendous cascading force of snow and whatever it picks up uh destructively destroying that which is down in its path um and so what's interesting about them as a rebel group is that they are functionally considered terrorists not only by shinra who controls the news um but but by those around them what they do is they attack mako reactors because they like environmentalists believe that the mako Reactors are sucking the life force out of the the uh, earth, and well, so perhaps that does warrant the the Mako reactors being destroyed. But something that they they do in this first mission is they attack during the day, hmm. and something that one of the characters that you can talk to right before you have your first meeting back with Avalanche in the slums is he says, "Yeah, you know, Avalanche. The thing is, I don't know why they didn't attack at night when nobody would have been there because they're studs." And well, so something you find out is that these avalanche rebels are terrorists in that respect. That even though, you know, like Aquinas might say, they're, they're fighting against unjust laws that are no longer laws, they are also trespassing upon some natural laws here because it's not a wartime situation they find themselves in. It's a, it's a local civil situation. And even though I suppose you can justify that those people who work for Shinra, which I suppose is the ma vast majority of people who have jobs in this sort of tyrannical society, uh, deserve death for what they're doing to the planet. But if they could just as well have made this attack at night and spared these individuals, a real question that I have about them, and perhaps you know, a real foreshadowing of the game to our current situation is, what, what is... A, are avalanche terrorists? And B, what is the appropriate relationship between saving the world but also sparing the humans that might get in your way? So who, who are the humans, though, that we encounter in this first Mako reactor? Hmm. The um, guards, yeah. right? Guards, yeah. Yeah, so they're in, how, how I'm viewing this is what's now coming out is striking is that there are no workers mm -hmm. there are no either civilians or workers present at the mako mm -hmm. reactor the only but that's only because your interest as a fighting character moving forward is with the soldiers like you don't have any interest in talking like there's, there's a streamlined version of what's happening oh no it's a no, giant absolutely. mako reactor it's like those workers are present we're, we're only but seeing, you just don't see them we're only seeing a small function of it but even at the gate checks um they're they're mm -hmm. absent and mm -hmm. i'm well you're given a sense that this is sort of abandoned at first you don't really know what you're doing as you get into the game it's only after you've destroyed it, you have the single-minded focus when you start right you're on this train yeah. you jump off you're fighting you're into it and only after you've destroyed the mako reactor do you find out innocent people have died due to what you have done huh. right. all right yeah the, and the the way the fighting is is structured is interesting because sometimes you can see the enemy before you fight mm. and sometimes you can't sometimes you're just walking around exploring and then suddenly you'll the screen will sort of like swirl and blur and then you're in the fight scene mm -hmm. um, and that's and that's sort of like i think mirrors kind of what you're talking about where like you only see certain things uh -huh. um, it's it's like you don't get to see the whole picture and the camera is not something you can move around, right? The camera's fixed. It follows you, but it doesn't like show you a, a first person view where you can like look around and see stuff. So it's a stylized kind of fight system and it's a stylized approach to the, um, the whole adventure thing. It's like almost schematized. 
uh, and bringing it down to a, a level that's like giving you, like you say, the, the feeling of being this character, but not to the point that you are like in a verisimilitude uh, relationship to everything. Right. Um, right. And the, right. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Go on. No, the, the way that I thought about this too is like the, the game doesn't start you looking at cloud. The game starts you looking at the stars, which turn out yes. to be what Eris is looking at. And so I found that like a cinematic touch mm -hmm. there really, really interesting. I want to, what do you guys think about that? Why, why start the game that way? Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind um, is that when we're looking at stars, again, uh, the foreshadowing towards the future, uh, what, is, what do we know that comes from the stars later? Meteor. And Genova. Mm. All right. So Genova has already this appearance within the storyline, although it's veiled. Um, yeah. The main uh, antagonist, the one that pushes the story forward, Genova through Sephiroth, already has an appearance. Well, and even at a symbolic level, it may be a comment on the fact that we spend so much time rooted to the earth, looking at the stars, and that so many of our problems come from precisely that, missing where the action of life is at and staring at the stars. If you consider Genova a psychic phenomenon, like a virus of thought, yeah. like the overcoming of one's personality by pride or arrogance, um, like a fallen star, like a Lucifer, uh, oh, yeah. that falls from heaven and causes itself a fall from grace, well, which perhaps will... Yeah, go to, on. To, to put it in Daddy Jung's own lingo, <laughs> it, it rings heavily to me in the way that you were describing it, but just to get into this sort of um, depth psychology vocabulary, uh, 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 just pinnacle and absolute power complex in the fact that Sephiroth seeks to redesign the world through his own image. Um, and nothing outside of that image can exist. It's a very totalitarian view of the world, of the cosmos. Um, yes, yeah, 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 I agree with that. But also just uh -huh. in this particular instance, suggesting that it's the exploratory aspect, that this is just another aspect that's interesting, that as if you're looking for all the answers to the world by looking to the stars, but if mm -hmm. the stars are themselves representations of thoughts within the mind, the best way to explore the stars is not by going to the stars or looking at the stars, but by bringing the stars into the world, by embodying the thoughts. That one explores thoughts, or, and, and thus the universe best, not by leaving the world, but by engaging with the world. That you can never understand the power of a thought insofar as it's simply left in your head or understand the power of a story insofar as it's not spoken, that it's only when the feet are on the ground and the roots are digging in that you, you have a, a legitimate experience. It's, it, it's almost like a metaphor for the act of the story itself, that what starts out in potential and potency is then made actual and real by humans um, and their relating and their relations to each other. Um, not to try and get too metaphorical, but what do you guys think about that? Or what do you have to add to that or, or subtract in this case? No, I, I think that's a pretty good like outline of, of kind of what's going on there. I, I like that it's in the, um, it turns out to be this like little glimpse of beauty and light. It's mm. down a dark alleyway. Right. And she, yes. um, she kind of, her heels click and it's silent and it's only sound. And then suddenly it's like, this loud uh, car thingy drives by, you know, clunking along. And so it's like this kind of, um, like I said before, microcosm um, yes. there of the whole game. It's like there's this beautiful thing that's, that's being encroached upon by darkness and noise on all sides, but it doesn't detract from it. And, and in some sense, it's like it's, it's an instantiation of, like you were saying, Vince, like this, um, this kind of spirit thing um, that, that powers even the uh, the oppressive regime, right? The, the regime itself is drawing upon this power that it doesn't understand to do something that it knows not 
you know, what it does sort of thing. So I'm going to be uh, like the, the force of banality here, just be this critical uh, negative force right now. We've all been in a city at any, any point in our lives. Like Alex, you always talk about how you were born in San Francisco. You, you know what it looks like. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you look up at the sky in a city at night, right? What do you see? Right. Uh, one star, maybe Mars right now. Yeah, yeah. So um, who, who, whoever was in charge. Oh, because Mars is in retrograde. Watch out, guys. Um, Mars is bright right now. Whoever was in charge of this design, like, obviously wasn't paying too much attention. Uh-huh. Well, it turns out not to be stars, right? It's our own mistake and something you know, and just as we've been talking about what we can see and what we can't see because of the fixedness of perception, but, but also something that we find out soon is that those in the slums, part of being poor is that you can't even see the light of the sun. So it's not so much that you, you just don't have access to resources in an <clears throat> economic way, but even you don't even have access to the same perspective as those above <clears throat> you. Um, uh, you don't even have access to seeing the natural phenomena that can perhaps symbolically represent the infinitude of existence, that there's an, there's, there's an element of being trapped. And so yeah. this is actually a very interesting thing about uh, how this game starts as opposed to say many major role-playing games. Rather than simply being in your hometown, A, you are not in your hometown. This is your work town. And we find out about your, your hometown, which is called Nibelheim, another sort of German Norse name, um, any Heim. I think it means village in Norse. It must mean something like that. Um, and and so you're you're not in your normal home, but rather than being in sort of a comforting, safe place that is estuary-like that you must now leave in order to face the dangers of the world, like how a small bird must leave the nest or like a small human must make it on his own, Vince. And uh, <laughs> is, uh. you're in you're in sort of an <laughs> oppressive prison-like place. It's as if the idea of the initial states of consciousness that you need to break out of in order to go from, say, um, group identified member to individual or child to adult is, is sort of an act of breaking out of an egg um, like a bird. That what we're going to have to do in order to get this full perspective, to see the world as it is rather than just this city, which is our initial world, is we're going to have to break out. We're going to have to expand our perspective. And that's not going to be a passive endeavor mm-hmm. because most people in the slums, and this is a quote I actually wrote down because Cloud said, he says, nobody chooses to be in the slums. Mm-hmm. Nobody makes that choice. And so, well, it's like, okay, well then what's the opposite of that? Choosing to get out of the slums. And so I think there's, there's, there's a sort of a self-responsibility um, a, a motif that's right there in the beginning. And, and also, but as I think it's sophisticated because obviously the avalanche is trying to affect change, but they're making big mistakes. Killing innocent people is not a small mistake. And it's not going to get, I mean, I think that also prefigures their eventual failure, mm-hmm. at least by, by the methodology they've taken as terrorists. That even though they have the right idea, potentially, that's only the start. You have to act it out correctly. You have to embody it. You have to take responsibility for the consequences. Well, and there will be, yeah, so, go on. So, so something you mentioned uh, brought brought an idea to my head. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but we, we, <laughs> we open up in in not just a work town. We open up in an underworld. Ah, we open up if we want to expand this sort of uh, free association that I'm doing right now. We open up in a hell in which sure. you have these shades, these shades of people walking around, not fully human, um, perhaps not even uh, fully dead yet, but they exist. Well, not in- fully human, human in that they can't manifest the logos because they don't have a fuller perspective. Yeah. I think that's good. Go on. So. <clears throat> With that, what kind of hell is this? It, it in the imagery, it's pretty obvious that it's underneath the sun. There is this upper crust world that does enjoy the sun, and then there's these underground denizens. But it is not; it's not a spiritual place. Um, mm. 
Right. It's very physical. It, it's very like Homer's under. It's also like Dante's. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's physical. These people live here, breathe there, fuck, die, all of that. So, um, one, what are those people doing there? Uh, and I'm going to mm. bring in sort of hopefully a, um, I'd call it, although I wouldn't stick by this, maybe a, a capitalist realist um, view of this, that sure. these, these people are living in a fully industrialized society. Um, they're well, only the, the underground dwellers. They're only there to serve as a maybe a reserve labor pool for Shinra, which is the only seemingly employer in town. Um, so have, its name means god so yeah. probably that's true yeah and they recently won a war against a neighboring people so that's also interesting a corporation has just defeated a country or a yeah. city called wutai yeah so okay. something that sort of the anti-capitalists with you know various weak arguments these days uh <laughs> sort of sort of lay forth is that you know corporations are evil and that the market is a terrible place. It's like, yeah, well, the free market is literally the embodiment of all the collective free wills of everybody who exists. And of course, uh, as we know from Warren Farrell, something like 85% of home shopping decisions are made by women. So it's the free choice of women, mostly uh, expressing themselves and creating massive wealth within the world. And I mean, a question I, I would well ask is, you know, what's the difference in speed between snail mail and email? And perhaps that's that's what the difference between the market and something socialist is. But, uh, but the question I'm really interested in here is that is, is Shinra actively seeking to oppress these poor? And this is, mm -hmm. this is going to U.S. Um, okay. Or are they simply, I mean, this is a very hard question. Or are they simply, like Peterson has claimed, reading you know economics, it, is it simply the case that they're, insofar as there is a vastly wealthy people, regardless of whether it's egalitarian or totalitarian, there will be a lower class. There will be a people who do not have access to that which everybody has, regardless of your best intents. Like, so I guess my question is, are these people in this terrible situation because of Shinra or by, because of the fact of inequality in human society? Okay, I mean, I, I would say yes. Uh, to your question, yes, Shinra yes. is oppressive, oppressive because I think, like you said before, they control the media, right? Uh, and they are putting out a very limited uh, kind of story about it. Anyway, ah. the other thing that we see in this game, which I think is pretty cool, is um, the the posters and the magazine uh, yes. uh, billboards for movies and loveless. advertising. Loveless is the big movie, I guess, of the season. It's it's a play. It's a play. It's uh, uh, from Crisis Core, which I'm not going to talk about a lot here. That's play. Loser. It is, it, is, it is the play that Sephiroth's friend and soldier, Genesis, is always quoting. Uh -huh. It's okay. like the famous stage play that's going on at that right on. time. It's, it's like the Broadway in play. The 90s. It's the yeah. <laughs> it's well, so it's a it's a society which is less than perfectly free, I guess. Um, it's it's clear uh, that people come to this city from other places, though, right? They're drawn to it. Cloud to work for Soldier, um, perhaps out of a misguided ideal of his hero, Sephiroth, the great uh, fighter. But also Tifa, for reasons yes. we don't fully understand yet, has That's come right. to the city. Mm -hmm. And Barrett, I think we've got to talk about Barrett at least a little bit. Yes. We hear yes. more about, I want to say about him, though. We, we learn about his story later. We never really of his motivations for, for joining this movement, but we never really see, and this makes your question hard to answer, we never really see the background of, of the Shinra bosses and like what they're about, really. Like, what are they trying to accomplish? The villains suppose, yeah. always get short shrift in these kind of things, which is, well, yeah. But I, I think you do hint at something. We will get a small insight into that through the figure of Kate Sith mm. at some point. Uh, so we will get, we will at least get an antagonism or a conflict of morals between those who are the Shinra high guard uh -huh. or board in this case, um, which, which is very interesting, well, which is very interesting. Yeah, go on. We, we, yes. we will also get, and I'm not 
because right right now I'm still trying to figure out how we are playing this game of discussion, how much we want to bring up um, that will occur in the future of the game. But we will have um, not not a look at an individual villain mm-hmm. within Final Fantasy VII, within the Shinra Corporation. Um, uh, we will have a look at sort of the ideology of Shinra or maybe their experimentation with Genova through mm-hmm. this uh, Dr. Mengele character that we encounter, I think, in the second Hojo. disc. Yeah. yeah. Hojo or Gast? Um, Which one? Yeah. The original is Gast, Professor Gast, and, and then Hojo's the one Sephiroth looks down upon. Uh, yeah, so I my, my memory is failing me right now, but whichever one does the actual human experimentations um, on Sephiroth's mother. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think I, that may be both of them. Gast was at least still alive Yeah, at that time. I think he had the original research idea. Hojo may have carried it so, through. So maybe all I'm trying to do with that point is introduce it right now that we will have a unveiling, maybe not through these individual strong villain types, um, who give this uh, dissertation on why they're doing this potentially <laughs> evil stuff, but it will be yeah. gathered throughout. And oftentimes with such expanses of time in between that you can't put the pieces together without mm-hmm. maybe going back to replay or, you know, just reading the Wikipedia page. <laughs> right or watching a playthrough which i do want to ask Ooh. you about but so so wes you mentioned that you want to talk about barrett and so maybe the first thing we can do is talk about uh well first his physical description barrett seems to be clearly african-american and he's larger than any of the um, other characters correction sir all- there is no america in final fantasy <laughs> that's a good point Africa. um but it is being marketed to americans eventually and the characters do look rather uh rather western european but in any case, he's 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 the darkest skinned person there. He has a beard. He's the oldest at 35, which we're all creeping up on Shut now. Up, dude. Uh, <laughs> and um, just just because this may be the most operant point, he has a different weapon from Cloud. Cloud has the archetypal sword, a large sword, the sword of the logos. He's going to, and that sword is going to be sort of a representation of the perspective that we take with him. That which he learns and cuts with it, we will learn and cut with it. But Barrett has a far more conventional sort of weapon to our sci-fi minds. He has a Gatling gun that has been grafted to his right arm. Yes. And, and so I, I suppose I want to ask both of you, but specifically Wes in this case, what do you think is that, why is it that Barrett has a gun and, and, and he's the first person you ever fight alongside and you have a sword? Because at first I remember when I was young, that was sort of odd. I was like, can my sword block bullets? And you know, the people we're fighting against seem to have guns as well. And I mean, on the one hand, there does seem to be this this uh, joining together, this admixture of mm-hmm. sci-fi gun and fantasy sword. Mm-hmm. But but also, I suppose Barrett is sort of more long range, where mm-hmm. where where Cloud is going to have to get up close in order to make damage. But w- what do you make of that? Why? Why, why, what is this, what is this distinction in weapons? What is it supposed to tell us about their characters? Well, yeah, um, I mean, we see that he's also the first one to drop some uh, swear words, which get garbled. Ah, uh, yes. And I think that's really, that as a kid struck me, you know, much more so than the weapon thing. I was like, oh, they, can, they can do that. I mean, it's just like a comic yeah. book, of course, but still that was, new, that was a new thing at the time, I think. And so he's, yeah, he's a fascinating character. His gun arm thingy like he is a weapon you know yes he is a weapon we hear like sephiroth being talked about and later there's bosses which are just called weapon you know yes so scary yeah yeah and then so uh he's he's the one who's got this vision it seems quite narrow but it's like we blow up the reactors we save the planet like now we have an adventure you know so he sort of sets the tone for everything in the beginning but there's this funny like you know, con, con competition between him and Cloud. Like, uh, he cares so much. Cloud tries to care so little. Uh, he goes in guns blazing. Cloud is like a little more intellectual, as you say. He he's a little more surgical in some some respects. Um, but I think that that 
it, it plays together really nicely. And we see that he's got this kid back at the bar, um, Marlene, right? He's a father. Who, uh, who reminds me, just in memory, of the girl from Monsters, Inc.? Ah. <laughs> does, does anyone yeah. else get that resonance? Well, I think, I, I think you're exactly right to understand that it's the same metaphor. It is the civilizing effect of love on a monstrous individual that a child can have that, you know, potentially Barrett is the sort of guy that could have been a really good soldier. And we don't really know his past. Uh, Yet, you know, and that's right. That's right. And so, you know, potentially he was a sort of gnarly dude with his missing hand and Gatling gun right arm and giant bulging muscles and uh, quick to swear and quick to fight attitude. Yeah, he's so yet, fucking thick. But now he's now he's fighting you know, on the side of good, so he thinks, but he's got the right idea again. He's got the right goal. But like Wes, you said, he's, he has a very simplistic way of going about achieving that goal. So whether he's doing good or not is, is a real question. And, and I also like that there's antipathy between Cloud and Barrett at first, that they, they Tifa even brings it up. Did you guys fight again? Because they're always fighting because Barrett doesn't trust Cloud because Cloud's motivation is I don't care about you just give me money where Barrett's is like I can't understand how you could want money when we're trying to save the world right now well yeah um so one thing um I I I'll have to wait until I get the game again uh those degenerates so just have just so the listeners know you have been watching the playthroughs right Yeah, yeah I mean I visit the Wikipedia page like every month um it's god ooh, what a good game but haven't um, you even been watching on youtube other players playing yeah, through the game yeah like especially play? emerald weapon and all that ish like because mm-hmm. i could never beat emerald weapon uh, I, I i beat emerald but never ruby yeah so <clears throat> while we're uh characterizing barrett as maybe um to get some mythological uh, resonances going on as an enkidu um where yes and yeah yeah so so you like that um, so a beast man and yeah. you have um maybe, maybe uh i wouldn't characterize cloud at all like gilgamesh um but that might be the ideal which he's currently yes. inflated by but not truly identified with in action or in deed yeah. and so that that seems to be a very first level interpretation of this character of barrett um, First pass approximation. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. So, yeah. Uh, I, w- I want to look at the just this appearance of Barrett, how his um, body Which is appearance? Composed. The, uh, um, the animated one or the sort of sprite? Because, I mean, they are all much larger than everybody else around. I'm, I'm doing the cutscene, Barrett. Okay, very um, good. So we, we discussed... Um, Cloud, and I think we should also investigate the physical appearance of uh, Twink Boy, Cloud. Um, see, like he—he's a very interesting visual composite of opposites. A very uh, lethy figure who, nonetheless, is able to wield this gargantuan um, penis sword. He, well, he reminds me quite a bit of Donatello's David. Ooh. The sort of the very small, not not the great, not the great marble one mm-hmm. that everybody knows about, but the small bronze one where he's sort of cocky with his hip, yes. hips, himbo, he, he, with a very large sword that's too big him, for him. Right? So yeah. yeah, so what that makes me think is that sort of the destiny or the britches are too big for the character mm-hmm. as he currently is. Yes. That he's not yet that he'll have to develop before he's worthy to the task that he's not quite there, and that maybe that's a hint. And that is a shocking thing about when you see Cloud, right? Like, tiny little dude, giant sword, how's he wield it? Um, so, yeah. uh, b- back to Barrett. Um, yes. So we, we arrive to Midgard, first scene, um, just disgusting mechanization everywhere, just the most barbaric sort of um, use of the... F- fantastic creations that the industrial revolution has brought us uh and then we see barrett we have this composite figure of human organic matter with this garish um destructive potential of 
the industry around him. Uh, if I want to get dialectic on this, he's a union of opposites. He has in part become what he hates most. He is a, um, at least part of him, uh, similar to the reactor around him. And in a right. sense, uh, this, is, this is why I bring this up, is that he appears in this perspective to be, um, at, right, right now in this introduction, more um, complicated and more fruitful of a character than Cloud, because he's taken the opposite into himself. Whether well, and you might even say, yeah, you might say that what this society does to its individuals within it is turns them into weapons mm-hmm. in a de-individuating sort of way, just as Cloud is soldier yeah. uh, without name, possibly an acronym. So is Barrett now completely molded with the task for which he's, he's, he's uh, for which he exists. He is himself a destructive weapon at this point. It's as if Part of what he's doing, 35, second half of his life, will be instead of honing himself into something that completely identifies with a weapon uh, into becoming a person or something more than, than, than his profession or his task. Well, I would and, say that and, yeah. he's already more of a person than Cloud might be. In well, that's certainly that he, true. We'll find he, out. He has love and he also, um, his introduction is as part of a community. Cloud is sort of this wandering spirit who goes to where the money is um, and without any history except that Tiffa knows. Um, yeah. But, but he, he begins to be fleshed out even more. Just right now, he's very um, he's hovering above the earth, if we want to use that imagery. He's not connected. Whereas Barrett, what's that guy's name? Biggs? Um, Big, oh, Big Wedge. Wedge from Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, Star Wars. Um, uh, we we can't we can't forget those who fall so early in this game. Um, they they live amongst each other in this very human, albeit underworldly, um, community. Totally, it's underneath the jukebox. I love that. Right, the game ah. is it's so mm. cool. Yeah. I want to say too, uh, Barrett's got the money for Marlene schooling, and that's what uh, yes. he pays uh, a cloud with after they have their conversation, right? So, um, and you know, that's sort of an interesting choice, right there, isn't it? How do you change the world? Mm-hmm. Pay pay the soldiers in order to destroy the prevailing order, or teach the youth? Right. Um, so we got the, two the... teachers right here. I mean, I've retired. <laughs> um, what do you guys? What do you guys think? Well, look, I would love to teach this game as part of a class. I think it would be like really something that kids would connect with and learn a lot from. So, yeah. Pay, yeah, pay me absolutely. Or don't pay Especially, me. I would do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, we're in the, we're in the process of doing that now. We're collecting sure. our notes on this and uh, well, y'all, we've already gone for uh, about an hour now. So I guess what I might do is ask, are there any final bits you two want to talk about obviously we're going to miss a lot all the time mm-hmm. but there's going to be about a 20 part segment so things we miss we can always loop back around to and at, as you know we continue to converse these themes will continue to develop and we'll see more and more so there's never you know there's never any any rush to say everything mm-hmm. uh we'll have we'll have time um but i get and the second question would be where would y'all like to play two next Ooh, time damn where would be uh i mean would do we want to get um out of midgard or do we maybe want to get to the final mission in midgard or uh deeper into the slums what do y'all think wes maybe i'll let you get this one um or i mean how far are you wes i i'm just as far as we're supposed to be yes i don't supposed to be I played for about an hour and got to the um, part where you're you're done talking and you've done this cutscene about the promise and now you're free to explore, um, right? Sector right. seven or whatever you're in. Uh, yes. And I think I think if we play for about an hour or so each time, that's probably good. You know. Okay. 
Okay, so get through the ghost graveyard and on into the next things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Sure, perfect, 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 perfect. Okay, good, 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 good. I'm already forgetting what. My, oh yes, my first question is what. There are just. Are, is there anything else that we wanted to quickly touch on? I think. I mean, I. I was. Uh, I wrote down some notes, but it's a lot of what we talked about. Cloud and Barrett getting into a fight. Um, oh well, I guess one thing. One thing, and this is such a mundane thing to end on, but perhaps it's great. Something that I, I, I always enjoy hearing from you, Wes, when I listen to Bookworm Games, is you talking about the interactions you have with the NPCs, the non-player characters. Yes. You can just go up to and talk to, and you can walk into their houses, and they're sometimes like, why are you in my house? And, they, <laughs> and Earthbound sort of inverts this theme. But yeah. something interesting in this game is just the tone, the music. Yeah. It was the first thing we all talked about, and we didn't talk about it on the podcast, which is shameful, I know. But the music sets the tone. The harp at the beginning. And then sort of the, the music while you're in the slums of... There's a darkness, a gloominess to it. Um, and there's a gloominess even to all the people while there's still a faint hope within them. Like the train conductor you get a chance to talk to talks about the joys and the sorrows of life. You talk to a couple eventually near your hideout where they the mom says i was so annoyed by my son when he was here but now i miss him when he's gone all these sort of nuggets of of wisdom when you're first going through as a kid you're like oh that's like a boring whatever thing to say but what's being said by these characters are 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 facts that or are are essential statements that real humans would say as well right like a train conductor uh, distilling down the shape of his ex his experience as a conductor for many years into man, life is full of joy and sadness is really quite profound. Or the idea that those and here's a <laughs> profound foreshadowing: the people around you right now you take for granted because you can't imagine not having them around. But the moment they're gone, you miss them for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it's. It's something I always enjoyed even as a kid playing the game was walking around talking to everybody and, and getting all those little tidbits of uh, these hints at they, all these lives taking place. But the, um, the part that I like about it too is the, uh, the little training room where you get to ah, walk. Yes. It sort of inverts that too because it's like it makes Cloud the expert on everything and people are asking yes. him for advice. And he's like, okay, so what do you want to hear about? And that's the game's way of like letting you learn a bunch of stuff um in a, a little bit of a funny way and the safe point um the safe point talks to you the treasure box talks to you um the little kids learn about limit breaks right and and you see them uh use magic on each other and it's just like this uh this light tone to it but then yeah sure when you look at it later and you know what what happens as the story moves on then it, it takes on a, a bit of pathos um that that combination of of humor and and tragedy is I think a mark of sophistication as much yes. as you could say the mark of, uh, you know, simplicity or, or, you know, not being quite clear about what kind of thing this is. It's a young art form and it's like, it's very interesting to see how it develops. Mm -hmm. well, it's a, it really sets itself up to be an art form alongside the greatest art form, the epic, because what the I epic thought you were going to say anime. <laughs> <laughs> but what, the, what the epic uh, can divide into are tragedies and comedies, but what an epic does is it interweaves them just like they interweave themselves in a human life and a human soul. Mm -hmm. And so I think the nuance of it that you're ca catching there, that these people are making the best out of a potentially bad situation while other people are trying to make a bad situation better but are potentially making it worse, and that everybody is dealing with these consequences emotionally and that not everybody necessarily – or nobody seems to know what to do to improve things is, yeah. is precisely a very sophisticated um, note for this game to make and potentially uh, a major connection between the game and, you know, the soul of the people who made it. Not, you know, obviously it is the Japanese, it is a Japanese game uh, made, and this is something we talked about with The Wind Rises, and they are encountering sort of the, uh, the Western world and had been and, and sort of finding their place within it after having been isolated for so long and trying to, to find their way with, uh, within a world that is very different from what they expected while also 
of course, we as Westerners are playing this game and we're trying to understand um, how it fits within our particular uh, mythos as well. It's, it's not so much that it's like a mixed metaphor or bad so much as all of this Western mythology like Midgard and Nibelheim and the Midgard serpent are appearing in this game made by Japanese people. And there seems to be sort of just a confusion between cultures of uh, where, what is the new prevailing sort of world culture or what is the new prevailing sort of mythology that is going to break through? I, I would say if I were going to throw a theory down on the first day, it would be that this game, and this is why I would say it struck so many people so deeply, is representing the birth hmm. of sort of an international mythology or a or 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 is revealing some sort of underlying structure of mythology which is true of both the eastern mythology and the west well and is trying go ahead yeah. sorry well and it's just trying to parse that out uh what that's going to look like exactly and so it has it's like a collage it has bits and pieces from from each you know some norse mythology here some some takeaway from the fantasy genre some adding in of contemporary uh, uh, political and environmental questions. Mm -hmm. um, some Japanese motifs here, uh, some Western motifs here. Um, I mean, even the city itself, Midgard, is itself a combination of those symbols. It's deeply phallic and masculine in that the uh, Shinra building reaches up into the heavens. It's also feminine in that it's represented by a circle. Um, it, it's all interconnected. It also so has on. a big penis gun that comes in later. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it certainly will. And so, I, so, you know, I know I'm not saying this exactly clearly because I'm circling, I'm being circumspect here, or I'm circolocuting, circumlocuting, excuse me. But that what this game seems to be trying to do is to figure out the world or the story of the world in which we all now live, which none of us have figured out. Mm -hmm. And which is why we continue to return to this game even 21 years later after its inception. I agree um, that the, the music is a big part of it. The music is uh, not entirely um, Western, but it, it uses a lot of Western style and, and instruments and orchestration. Um, but it's also like the thing which is not necessary to translate from one yes. language to another. So you've got these kind of canons of, of hearing music, which are Western, but those in themselves are built on things which are much deeper and seemingly universal, right? Across all cultures, there's music and, right. and elements of rhythm and, and melody and all that. And so, yeah, that to me, like you can just sort of hear that music and it sort of takes you back and yes. connects you to something which does seem to be in the past and in the future, right? So not quite articulated, but in some sense hinted at there. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. Ending on a note of that which connects us all. Well... Gentlemen, this has been an excellent first mission on this first side quest <laughs> into Final Fantasy VII. And f hopefully we'll do, uh, as we continue to bumble along, uh, we'll start to do more good than harm. Uh, and, um, well, so uh, I think doing this about once a week would work very well for me. And so hopefully for y'all. And um, school starts next week, so it might have to be the, during the afternoon for me but let's set a regular time soon and uh well yeah. you know let's understand a big part of our lives together and see if we can help other people do the same sounds great all Let's right guys all right till next time then see you guys bye bye <laughs>